This is the LSE Review of Books podcast. I'm Amy Mollett. On today's episode, as London opens itself up to the world for the 30th Summer Olympic Games, we explore the effects of the Games on the local environment and local people. What happens when global meets local? We talk to Ricky Burdett, Professor of Urban Studies at the LSE and Director of LSE Cities, about his role in London 2012 and the vital importance of Olympic legacy. Make sure that the venues are the best possible to win as many Olympic goals and break as many records. That's a big thing for the Olympic Organising Committee. Yes, do all that, but most importantly, think of it as a way, as if you've laid out the veins, the infrastructure, for then something which becomes a real piece of city. Author of Ghost Milk, Ian Sinclair, tells us why he feels that the Olympics have brought about very rapid and negative changes to the London borough of Hackney. You spend millions of pounds to take down pylons that have stood on this industrial site and you put up in their place a kind of fake pylon by Anish Kapoor. There's this enormous irony in that, that the, the whole process is a metaphor for the lunacy of this project. And we end the podcast with Dr Susie Hall, urban ethnographer and lecturer from LSE Cities, as she talks us through the beautiful architecture books that inspired her interests in the design of cities. One has to imagine reading these books as a student in South Africa in the late 1980s, pre the digital age, and when travel abroad was prohibitively expensive. I pored over the pictures in these books, travelling across geographies and histories in absolute sensuous delight. All that coming up. Welcome to this LSE Review of Books podcast on the Olympic Games. The Games are nearly in full swing here in London, and now as the torch is on its final leg to Stratford for the opening ceremonies, we take a closer look at cities and the effects of urban development. Alongside his role at the LSE as Professor of Urban Studies and Head of LSE Cities, Ricky Burdett is also the Principal Design Advisor for the 2012 Olympic Games. I started by asking Ricky what will happen once the Games have finished and about the steps taken to ensure a positive social legacy and impact in the area. In many ways, the role of someone like me, partly an academic and researcher and partly someone who's been getting his hands dirty over the years with different urban projects in different cities, was together with hundreds of others, right? I was one of. Try and rethink the way that you could actually plan an event which is going to last two plus two weeks if you put the Olympic and the Paralympic Games together. How can you take this opportunity, which it really is, to do something which is really for the good of London? The Olympics is part of a much longer term vision or concern that those who've been dealing with London's social and economic and cultural balance have been looking at. And that's very simply described in this way. West London is more affluent, better serviced than East London. East London has much higher unemployment, has people who have considerably lower life expectancy, seven years difference between East and West for a man. You live to around 80 years if you live in Westminster, you live to around 73 years if you live in Stratford. I mean, it's that dramatic, the difference between East and West. So the notion of trying to rebalance London has been in the DNA of, let's call it, policy thinking here for a long time. Everything from day one, and this I can say really with some authority because I was in the meetings, was legacy first. And I, Every single object that was thought about, the park, a tree, whether you have a bridge or don't have a bridge, how wide that bridge is, whether you have a Olympic swimming pool which has 17,000 seats or 6,000 seats, all was thought about what happens 
after 2013. Make it work for the 2012 event, make it as cool as possible, and make it comfortable for the million or so people who are going to be able to be there. Make sure that the venues are the best possible to win as many Olympic goals and break as many records. That's a big thing for the Olympic Organizing Committee. Yes, do all that, but most importantly, think of it as a way, as if you've laid out the veins, the infrastructure, for then something which becomes a real piece of city. The site in Stratford literally had one road going through it, Carpenter's Road, one. Why? Because the place was a sort of industrial wasteland in part. There were the allotments where people lived, and all this has a life. It's not that what I'm describing is lifeless. It's a different sort of life to the one, perhaps, that we're turning it into. But the place had this sort of character, and it was completely cut off from the surroundings. Now, the graphic example is that the Olympics has put in something like 30, 35 bridges, That's a lot. Over water canals, over railways, over motorways, over other roads and everything else, in order to literally connect. But when you have 200,000 people coming out of a tube station, you need to have an incredibly wide bridge. So some of the bridges coming out of Stratford Station have been designed as wide as the heart of Trafalgar Square. But imagine in February of next year, what would it be like if you're there as a family or going to play there? You don't want this massive thing. So the bridges have been designed to be reduced. So this metaphor, it's a very concrete one, of the bridges is how the whole thing has been designed. It's a very architectural engineering approach, but it's all about trying to make all this thing work, this massive investment of public money for different people and different communities who are going to be living there for the next 30, 40, 50 years. If Paris had won the Olympic bid, how do you envisage Stratford and the Olympic site looking now? Cities don't change simply because politicians decide to or simply because you have an Olympics. Even though I'm part of, as I said, this group, things happen also because there's a natural process of change. And uh, in London in particular, the private sector is always there before anyone else. But if Paris had won the Olympics, would the place be a complete empty, soulless place? I think not. There was a process already happening, which is very much how London works. You know, Some areas suddenly pop up and change. In 2002, a consortium of uh, private developers got together and got planning permission for a massive shopping centre worth £2 billion, which is Westfield East. Large amount of housing. They got planning permission for 5,000 homes. This is two years before the Olympic bids. If you look at London and you want to find a large industrial area next to good public transport, it's the Lower Lee Valley. It's the Stratford site. So there would have been development there, whatever. When the politicians decided to use this as the Olympic site, they piggybacked on the private sector development and said, oh, you're building that many houses. Fine, we'll use it for four weeks for the Olympic Games, but then we'll convert and give it back to the market. So looking ahead, which areas in London do you think will be the next for regeneration projects? And how do you ensure that this regeneration won't just lead to gentrification? I mean, I think the Olympics will work a bit like a dynamo. I mean, if you go to the site today uh, and you see cranes and buildings going up, everyone thinks they're Olympics. They're not. All the cranes are people and developers who are cashing in. And there's this sort of frenzy of having a 20-story tower block, which not only overlook the site, but are sort of part of the buzz that an event like the Olympic creates. This happened in all cities, and and London is sort of part of that. So I think uh, in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, a lot of London's new exciting development will happen in the wider Olympic site and around the wider Olympic site. The shift eastwards has started, and I think it will continue 
And I think that's absolutely positive because that's the bit of London that needs it most. There's important challenges there is how much the risk of gentrification and people being moved out and how, how can you guarantee that jobs are for local people and not for yuppies who move in or foreigners or whatever. First of all, all these issues of gentrification pressures and are issues that in the literature, in our field, are talked about everywhere. It's not the Olympics which are making it particularly worse. Does this mean that people who've been associated with the area for generations are, are moved out. Yes, but they were being moved out anyway. We're also dealing with a city like London, which is growing, needs to grow, needs to attract young people from around the world to work in the activities which are here. And I think this is a site that will continue absolutely to do that. So you need this sort of flexibility and this vibrancy, uh, which is there. How do you control the negative effects of gentrification? How do you guarantee jobs might be more locally based. Well, there are two mechanisms which have really nothing to do with the Olympics. One is, today, the mayor of London's strategy, so Boris Johnson, post Ken Livingston, has a minimum threshold that any housing project should have 35% affordable housing. Under Ken, it was 50%. But it's still a lot. The other fact, which is very important and difficult to sort of understand this, from here to King's Cross is how big the site is. The whole Olympic site is, is, is as, as big as a big chunk of central London. What few people, I think, understand is that that whole piece of land is owned by us, the taxpayers, through an agency called the LLDC, actually owns the land. So they behave on our behalf as one of the great estates, like, like the Grosvenor Estate or the Crown Estate, because they will continue to hold the freehold. Now, this means that, for example, you can't get a developer who comes along and says, no, I'm going to block the street off. So that's also interesting that the Olympics does really two things. It creates an infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but also an institutional infrastructure, which has the potential. I mean, everything can be messed up, but it has the potential to actually, over time, and I'm talking about 20 years at least, make the right sort of decisions, which will perhaps guarantee a better outcome than not. That was Ricky Burdett. The latest publication from LSE Cities, edited by Ricky Burdett and Dayan Sujic, is Living in the Endless City, out now. You can find a review on the LSE Review of Books site. Ian Sinclair is well known for his writing on the neglected spaces and history of London, and has become almost synonymous with the borough of Hackney, where he has lived and worked for over four decades. Cheryl Brumley made the journey east to London Fields, a staple hangout for residents of the now hip and fashionable East End of London, which sits just a few miles away from the Olympic Park. Ian argues the area is more significant for the clues it provides into Hackney's past, a meeting point between old and new, and what he sees as a negative acceleration of change brought about by the Olympic project. I wanted to start in London Fields because this is such a piece of old London and it's also a name that was hijacked by Martin Amis for a novel which was entirely set in West London which in some ways set a marker for how the city is read because the, the Amis version of feral darts players and fat slobs in pubs interacting with 
smart, glamorous women in West London set a model for how um, names and landscapes can be hijacked. And the real London fields, which had been written about on the ground a while before this by a novelist called John Milne, who had been in the police and was about the kind of postcode gangs and kids that have grown up around here now, gave a very, very different story. But that book vanished without a trace. So what London Fields is, it's a wonderfully resonant name, is an old drover's patch where, where people used to bring down uh, ducks and geese and even cattle from Norfolk and fatten them up on the grasslands around here before taking them down to Smithfield to be slaughtered. So London would be a series of, of tracks made by animals. It's sort of blood tracks that go through. And now it's a disputed space because of the, the cosmetic developments that are happening to the new Hackney and people trying to reimagine us. And where we're standing right behind us are these figures that emerged, and I think of them as the gods of place. They're, they're actually two women, like pearly queens, all covered with glittering costumes, selling baskets of fruit and referencing the sheep and animals that were once upon a time in this area. So you realise Hackney is a, is a place of market gardens, it's a suburb, it's a pleasant place, it's on a river, the Hackney Brook, which has now disappeared. And that's the starting point. And the city absorbs it, the city takes it over, it becomes industrial, it becomes dirty, has the image of being dangerous in the city. And now it's at a point of great reinvention. It's, it's got to find a new identity and become a new place. And I've been here through a lot of this process because I moved here in 1968. So I've seen all the early communes and uh, anarchic developments and leftists gradually get pushed away and dispersed by economic imperatives and a different kind of city grows up. And uh, what I've done over the period of time, though working at all kinds of odd jobs, labouring jobs to start with, and then as a book dealer, was to try and keep some sort of record of these changes in various forms, initially in poetry, then through fiction, and lately in a semi-fictionalised documentary rambling, which is like a kind of written film. Your method as a poet is what's termed psychogeography. And that involves walking through a space and connecting with it. Yeah, I like the terminology, psychogeography, so I started adapting it for ways of uh, walking in the city and in investigating and invigilating the city. But I think the term got away in, in a big way, and so now it's applied to almost anything that's to do with walking, edgelands, liminal spaces, all of those things. Right, so should we walk further into yeah. London Fields? The Cowton Mutton Pub, which you see on the corner, is very popular now with the young people who are going to spend time on um, London Fields barbecuing when the weather's good. The pub is interesting as it's the model for the pub in the soap opera EastEnders. They've actually made the model of this and they conglomerate it all together into a version of what London is, this kind of fictional, fabulous London of EastEnders. And now that the pub has come back to life, as has Broadway Market. We're um, standing beside these hammering roadworks and there's one of the new bookshops that's grown up. And we can see in the window the very things we've been talking about, the Situationist International, alongside, ironically, a book called Silence by John Cage, and a new kind of bleak journeys through urban Britain by Owen Hathaway. So the themes that we've discussed are completely reflected into the, the new landscape of Broadway Market and the new Hackney. say new Hackney, is that the Hackney since the Olympic bid, or has this regeneration been going on? I don't really think of it as a regeneration. I think there's been a, 
A major change that took place when uh, the old Hackney Council found itself 80 million pounds in a black hole and they decided they had to to do something to get out of that and what they did was to get into bed with major developers so that in Broadway Market little local businesses that had been here were not able to to buy up the leases on their own properties because the council decided that they would rather give the whole chunk to a big developer and shift things into a different dimension. So there's a cafe down the road here which is run for a long time by a man called Tony Platier and that went, it had to go. Um, there was a food shop run by a Rastafarian called Spirit and his place had to go and the whole of Broadway market changed. So that was, that's what I mean by the new Hackney, it was a kind of invasion by a conglomerate of developers and, and a moment when the Hackney Council found itself in agreement with central government, which had never happened before because Hackney was all traditionally a leftist, difficult place and they, they fought central government for finance. Whereas now, largely with the Olympics looming, they're, they're in complete agreement. They're both in favour of the grand project, the big deal, the, the showbiz version of politics. And it doesn't matter what you lose, and we can quantify huge losses in relation to this project. And the official message from the explainers and bureaucrats is that the whole area was a wasteland. They keep saying this again and again. This was a wasteland, there was nothing here. And that's totally contradicted by the fact of the compulsory purchase document it has thousands and thousands of names of people who've been expelled. Thousands and thousands of businesses have gone. The Olympic Park is zoned like a city under siege. You listen for the muffled thrum of big-bellied aircraft. Murphy, Morris, Nuttall. They have strategic checkpoints and private armies. The shadow of old Berlin is unavoidable. But this time, the corporate entities have walled themselves by their own choice inside the defended stockade. Only by erecting secure fences, surveillance hedges, can they assert their championship of liberty. The threat of terrorism, self-inflicted, underwrites the seriousness of the measures required to repel it. Headline arrests in the Olympic hinterland followed by small print retractions. We've come now to the bottom of Broadway Market. If we carried on walking down the Regent's Canal here to the east, we would very soon arrive at the Hartford Union Canal, which we could use as a cut-through onto the grounds of the Olympics themselves. But unfortunately, we would not be allowed to walk any further because the whole towpath there is now closed as a result of the Olympics. Gosmuk includes many accounts from your time in Greece as well as in Berlin and it includes the diary of your friend who went to Beijing. In these visits you find bad omens. It's not just about London's grand project but about grand projects in general. There's a universal concept of the grand project because we've now created this category of privileged person who wants to move from one enormous event to another. VIP cars, VIP lanes, first class flights a sense of entitlement. It's, it's huge. And this massive sort of hideous octopus lands itself on country after country. It's moving on to uh, Brazil next. And I, I wanted to go back into the story and see what had happened. And, and when I got to Greece, it was just at the moment when people were beginning to take to the streets and riot because they realised what, what they were involved with. 
even though uh, when you talk to people they were still largely enthusiastic about the Olympic moment they liked being at the centre of attention they liked the opening ceremony the Olympic sites were deserted and abandoned with these huge stadiums which nobody could afford to keep up and locally here small swimming pools small areas of playing fields have been lost to put the money into the big one there wasn't, there wasn't the money to, to spend uh, £200,000 at one point on the Whiston Road swimming pool which is nearby so it closed and how are you therefore going to keep up one that kind of cost millions on the Olympic site you spend millions of pounds to take down pylons that have stood on this industrial site and you put up in their place a kind of fake pylon by Anish Kapoor there's this enormous irony in that, that, that the whole process is a metaphor for the lunacy of this project. And so what do you fear will become of London after the Olympics? I think up to now, um, London has always been able to survive whatever's been thrown at it. Because it's a, it's a massive entity and it, with this enormous human population. So many people trying to find their desire lines through the landscape that whatever happens they, they will adapt to it and absorb it and it'll within enough time will become something else because what the, what I'm talking about in support of the Lower Lee Valley was a record of failure and entropy um, it was buildings and, that had fallen into disuse it was young people and artists and squatters moving into abandoned warehouses in Hackney Wick it was exactly the city adapting to the disasters and the dirt and the danger of a previous generation it's going to be harder to do in this case because there's so much of an investment in it there's so much government media it's completely monolithic the whole official culture is ripped behind this system and the upbeat messages are, are totally Orwellian that was Ian Sinclair Ian's latest book, Ghost Milk, is out now. You can also see Ian's new film, Swan Down, which showcases the epic journey that he took from Hastings to the Olympic site in a giant swan pedalo. It's out now at selected cinemas. If you're a fan of our podcasts and our site, you'll already be familiar with our next segment, the Academic Inspiration series. These accounts aim to give insights into the books that inspired notable social scientists to go into their field. We sat down with urban ethnographer and LSE Cities lecturer, Dr Susie Hall, as she leafed through some very special books. My love for cities and books about cities starts with pictures. While words wind the reader through places, making links to people and ideas, pictures allow the reader to pause. Such moments of wonder, both an emotional response and an invitation to look more closely, relies on evocation as a way of writing about the city. My first career as an architect exposed me to many of the great picture books, which also happen to be books about design and the urban condition. As a student, the first book I found entirely compelling, from first page to last, was The Architecture of the City by Aldo Rossi. Among the pictures in Rossi's book, the one I return to is of the Palazzo della Ragione in Padua, the reader is presented with a full-page, black-and-white image of a commanding three-storey building facing a piazza. Rossi evokes for the reader two crucial relationships. First, the building has what Rossi calls aesthetic intention. It possesses a drama in its position on the square, afforded by its substantial scale, its robust colonnade and the generous curve of the roof. Even as a picture, the building generates an experience. Then, while the presence of the palazzo's form endures, 
Rossi tells us that its internal uses have changed again and again over time. We learn from Rossi that the urban building has two essential properties. It has presence, and it is simultaneously malleable to the values and forces of history. I also have a great affinity for Manfredo Tafuri and Francesco Delco's two volumes on modern architecture. While Rossi's books rely on the selection of a few images, Tafuri and Delco's volumes are absolutely littered with them. But one has to imagine reading these books as a student in South Africa in the late 1980s, pre the digital age, and when travel abroad was prohibitively expensive. I pored over the pictures in these books, travelling across geographies and histories in absolute sensuous delight. What remains acute in Tafuri and Delco's volumes is their analysis of architecture as a history of ideas and they draw the crucial connections between cultural and political imaginations. In urban sociology, the link between history and contemporary life, between politics and lived culture, is captured for me by Richard Sennett's canonical book, The Fall of Public Man. Sennett is an eclectic writer and draws on psychology, political theory, architecture and performance. These informed combinations, together with the vivid quality of Sennett's writing, gives his books an unusually wide audience. Sennett is also explicitly present in his books, and while he maintains academic rigour, he also employs the anecdote to surface the tangibility of time and place. Tangibility is the command of the writer who intensively lives the city, and Hemingway's immovable feast is an immersive read. I similarly love reading Joseph Brodsky's fabulous book on Venice entitled Watermark. Brodsky writes the city as a traveller and a visitor and combines gossip with an acute eye, all of which compels the reader to finish the book in one sitting. Hemingway and Brodsky are afforded city spaces in which to belong in the fullest ways. In contrast, South African writers in the apartheid era convey abject dislocation. Ezekiel Impachlehle's biography, Down Second Avenue, is amongst my favourite reads, and reveals in the clearest and cruelest ways the uses of the city in the politics of exclusion. What I carry from my career as architect to urban sociology is a stubborn regard for the author's voice. Rather than relaying objective accounts of reality, the writer of cities, I would argue, necessarily takes a political stance with respect to their time and their place. To do this, the urban writer connects social experience to causality. Such connections are apparent in Henry Mayhew's Morning Chronicles. Mayhew is the purveyor of fine-grained detail, but importantly he writes about urban poverty through linking wages, work conditions and costs of living. Mayhew traversed the worlds of work and home, and in doing this he could translate the effect of wage structures on the appalling living conditions of the urban poor. In telling about society... Howard Becker, a superb sociologist and ethnographer, describes evocation as the interpretive space curated between the writer and the reader. Becker makes the case for the writer to engage the reader in in interpretation. Evocation prompts the imagination and allows us to trace the lineage of human frailty and human ingenuity. In so doing, the writer of cities compels the reader to make emotional and intellectual connections across the spaces, life worlds and life chances of the citizens of the city.
for joining us for this episode on the Olympic Games. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and you can find the full list of the music and sound used in this episode on the podcast page, on our blog, and on iTunes. For daily reviews of the latest books in the social sciences, visit our site at lsereviewbooks.com. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at lsereviewbooks. Next month, we put democracy on trial to determine its positive and negative aspects. And LSE professor Lin J. Magnozo discusses the role of community radio in engaging African citizens in the process of social change. I'm Amy Mollett. That's all we have time for today. Until next time.